Good morning. This morning we're going to be reading Philippians 3, 1 through 11. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's going to be page 981. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, the glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Thanks, Mark. Let me encourage you to have a copy of the scriptures open to that passage that was just read there. And again, as Mark said, it is page 981. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there in the seats, uh, Philippians 3. We've been going through this book, and we have a seven-week series, and um, I think this is number four. So we have three, uh, three more uh, sermons to go. Um, I was reading a book um, uh, yesterday, I can't remember when it was, but anyway, um, there's one guy, he was preaching, this is like in, I want to say 1700s, he was preaching from uh, Psalms 51, verses 1 through 7, and he gave 152 lectures on Psalm 51, 1 through 7. So, I mean, I could do that, all right, but we're going the other way. We're kind of flying through this because we've got Advent coming up here, but uh, um, this has just been a good overview of the book. Um, we get a little bit at the Apostle's heart here. Remember, we told you that this is in many ways a, a thank you note. Uh, Paul is under house arrest. He's in the city of Rome. We read about this at the end of the book of Acts. And he's now under house arrest, and he's waiting for his case to be heard before Caesar. And, um, and this it was alluded to in chapter 1 of Philippians about how the, even the whole palace guard had, had heard about Christ because of Paul was in prison, okay? Uh, but while he's there in this house arrest situation there, a man by the name of Epaphroditus brings a gift to Paul in prison, and it comes from the Philippian church. Uh, this was a church that Paul loved, and uh, they loved Paul. 
And they gave him gift and aid of money, supplies. Uh, we don't know exactly all what was involved with it, but they, they sent him a gift. And, and so Paul is sending a note of thanks back to the Philippian church by the hand of Epaphroditus. But as we find out, we, we, we read last week, Epaphroditus got really sick, and they didn't know if he was even going to make it. He does uh, recover, and then so the delay of that thank you note was, it, it got delayed much longer than what Paul initially anticipated. So this is what we're reading. We're reading this letter back to a church that, that Paul absolutely loves. He calls them in chapter 4, beginning of chapter 4, um, my joy and crown. He, he absolutely uh, just has a great affinity for the Philippian church and vice versa there. So this is what we're, we're, we're studying here. Now we come to this text of scripture that was just read to us. And there's been a lot, this, a lot of ink has been spilt on this about, like, it starts with, finally, my brothers, and then it's the beginning of chapter 3, and he's got chapter 4 yet to go, and it's like, yeah, man, Paul, he says, finally, and then he just keeps going. And, you know, a lot of, you know, preachers in, 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 in seminary schools, sometimes they'll look at this and say, okay, don't do this. I mean, Paul can do it. He's an apostle. You can't, okay? You can't say, finally, then go on for another half hour, Okay. Honestly, though, that's not what is, this word could also just mean like, you know, furthermore um, and as what was said or, or, or on to the next point. And so uh, it, it really doesn't have this idea that Paul was coming to a conclusion and he changed his mind. But what he does do is he brings up a topic here again that he's been bringing up over and over again, and that is, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. If you were to study the word rejoice or joy, you would find that it comes up a lot in this book here. And he says that I want you to rejoice. I want you to have joy, is what he's saying. So what we're going to do over the next few minutes together, we're going to look at this topic of joy that Paul is very important to the Apostle Paul. And so what I'd like to do is I, I would like to examine in our time together that we have today of three crucial realities to know about joy, okay? So three crucial realities to know about joy. And that's how we're going to frame our time. Um, before I dive in, though, let me pause, ask God's blessing, and uh, then we'll, we'll dive into the text. Father, it is a joy to stand in front of my brothers and sisters and proclaim the word. Um, I don't pretend to have any abilities or uh, skill sets that would make this uh, meaningful to these, uh, these people gathered here today, whether in person or online. But what we do have is we have the Holy Spirit, and that's what we're asking for. We're asking for the Holy Spirit to, to take this text of Scripture and, and apply it to our lives, God. I, I pray that I would communicate in a way that is, that is accurate to the text, that is helpful, it's winsome, that's wise, and I need your Spirit's enablement for that. And at the end of the day, Lord, I pray that we'd have a greater appreciation for Christ. I pray that we would, we just saying, all I have is Christ. And I pray that that song would have even more meaning to us as a result of singing it, but then looking at this text of Scripture here. And so as we look at these realities, these crucial realities about joy, I pray that your Spirit would guide us and that this will be a time that is, is profitable for your glory and for our good. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. First crucial reality about joy is this is that joy is critical to your spiritual well-being. Okay, look at the text. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. He says to write the same things to you. And so what he's doing, he's saying, I'm coming back 
to this topic. I'm coming back. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And he says, listen, I know you've heard this from me. You know, I've mentioned this before. It's it's kind of like he was anticipating Paul as he's writing this. You can just anticipate there he's sitting in a a, a house arrest situation. Maybe a guard is chained to him or or he's there. He says he has, you know, a few supplies around his his little uh, place of living there. And he's he's writing this out. And then he's thinking to, okay, you know, Epaphroditus, I got to send this back to the Philippians. And so, you know, what do I want to tell them and everything? And then he says, you know, rejoice. And then probably clicks in his head. He's like, you know, you've already said this. And he says, but, you know, to say the same thing to you is of no burden to me. And so what I see from this is that this was a crucial topic. This was a critical topic for the Apostle Paul that he wanted the church that he loved so much to know. He wanted them to know that joy was incredibly important. The reason why I know this is because he keeps repeating himself. Paul does not waste words, and he repetition usually indicates importance. And so as he's coming back with this theme over and over again, he says, hey, you know, I'm going to say this again, rejoice. I mean, how many times have you said something to someone that you know you've said before, but you feel better by saying it because you know that it's good, okay? And in some ways, it almost makes you feel better. Or you say, when someone's leaving, you're getting ready to go on a trip, you know, okay, drive safe. Oh, man, I was planning on driving recklessly. Okay, but since you told me to drive safe, I'm going to, no, why do we say that? Well, we say that because it's like, yes, I know you know this, but it makes me feel better to tell you this, okay, all right? Or, you know, when you leave, the teenagers leave the house, it's like, don't do anything stupid, Okay, all right, don't do anything dumb, right? That's at least maybe that's what my parents told me. I don't know what it is in, in the case of the homes here with teenagers, but it's like, just, don't, just, just make good decisions, right? Okay, well, that's not the first time my parents ever told me that, but they wanted to tell me again because it was that important to them. And it wasn't like it was something that was like new revelation, but it's saying, please, please prioritize this. This is what Paul's doing here. He is prioritizing and saying, listen, you need to make sure that joy is part of your life, okay? Because it is critical to your, your spiritual well-being. How do I get that piece of it? Well, continue on the text where it says, it's no trouble to me to say the same thing. And then notice what he says at the end of verse one. It is safe for you. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by that it's safe for you? Well, joy is a safeguard. If we have joy in our life, it actually is a beautiful guardrail. It's actually very beautiful to to, to help us make those wise decisions. Um, You know, think of earlier, I was looking at text earlier in, or examples earlier in the book here. In in chapter 1 to verse 5, he says, um, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He says that this, this is what brought him joy, that they were partners in the gospel. But then when you continue down, it's like verse 15, he says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. He, he, you remember, he talks about how that while he was in prison, there were some Roman Christians who seemed to be preaching the good news about Jesus Christ. It seemed like their theology was okay, but they were a little jealous of the popularity that Paul had, and so they were preaching in a way that was not necessarily talking bad about Christ, but it was putting a negative light on Paul. And notice how Paul responds to this. He says, some indeed preach from, uh, uh, from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. Verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. And verse 18, he says, what then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, what does he do? He rejoices. He rejoices that Christ is proclaimed. Why is it a safeguard for the Philippians to make sure that they have joy in their life? It's because that when personal attacks come, if you have joy in Christ, who cares? 
If you have joy, if, you're, if you are, are confident in your position in Christ, not because of your own words, but because of Christ has done it, that just brings you joy that he has forgiven you of your sins. Who cares what other people say? This is what he's saying to, to the, the, the Philippians. He says, this is a safeguard to you. This is why I want you to have joy, because when things go sideways, it's not going to derail you. It's not going to take you in a way that you cannot recover from it. So that'd be one example. Another example is that we would see life and death properly. Again, in chapter 1, he says in verse 21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that is fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. He says, I'm, pre- I'm hard-pressed. This is verse 23 of chapter 1. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in faith. You see, Paul, then all of a sudden, when he had joy that was controlling his life, then all of a sudden he could see, you know what he could see? He could see life and death in perspective. He could see that, you know, this life is not all that there is. And he could see that death was actually something that wouldn't be feared if you know Christ as your Savior. And so when he tells the Philippians in chapter 4, he says, listen, you, this is critical, guys, that you have joy in your life because it is a safeguard for you. You'll see life different. You'll see death different. It will change the way you think if you have joy in Christ. It's critical for your spiritual well-being. There's many more examples. We could talk about how the... Would do things without grumbling or disputing. Chapter 2, verse 14 talked about if you have joy in your life, you're not going to complain. If you have joy in your life, you're not going to be wanting to fight with everyone about things. If you have joy in your, 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 your relationship with Christ, and I'm not saying that you bury your head to the problems in the world. That's not what joy is. Joy recognizes things. Paul did not bury his head in the sand about the fact that he was in prison or the fact that people were saying bad things about him. He was just saying, I got bigger fish to fry. I got bigger, more important things to worry about than this. Joy does that. It's critical to our spiritual well-being here. Last week we talked about effective ministry and efficient uh, uh, a servitude. How can we minister effectively? How can we have efficient ministry here at our church? Joy. If we have joy, we're going to share that. If we have joy in Christ. We're going to grow into things that, aren't, that, that, that normally would, would trip us up. They don't have that hold on us anymore. And so, as Paul begins this chapter 3 here, what we know as chapter 3, he says, listen, you have to have joy. It is critical to your spiritual well-being. How you live this life will be determined by whether or not you have joy or not. He says it's critical. All right. So I told you there's three crucial realities. The first one was that joy is critical to your spiritual well-being. It's a safeguard to us. But there's a second critical reality, crucial reality, if you will, about joy, and that is this, that there are thieves who look to steal your joy. Okay? There are thieves who look to steal your joy. Okay? Uh, it, 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 this is something we have to work at. Now, some of you astute Bible scholars are thinking, wait a minute here, Jeremy, I know what Galatians says. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Okay, so then this means that it is a fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in life that joy is. It's not something that I can conjure up. Yes and no. Okay, yes, I appreciate the theological connection there of Galatians chapter 5, but, or 6 is it, doesn't matter. But what I would say is that, yes, the Spirit of God does produce joy, but that is something 
That is absolutely something we have to be dependent on Christ for, that we have to have our perspective aligned with Christ because we can grieve the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. We can disobey the Spirit. And so while, yes, joy is a product of the fruit of the Spirit, what I would say this is that, that we have to be people who are cultivating this, that we are saying that, okay, my position in Christ demands that I have joy in this life and the life to come. That means, though, and what Paul's going to do is he transitions here, and it, it, it seems abrupt in some ways. I mean, I don't know if you picked up on it when Mark read the text, but in verse 1, he's talking about, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. You know, it's no bother for me to write this again to you. It's safe to you. And then, in, in, and then we get this barrage of warnings in, in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. It's like, whoa, where did this come from? Where, where did this happen? How did, how did we get here? Well, I'll tell you how we got here is because what Paul understood was when he was telling the people that they needed to rejoice, he was thinking also, okay, what robs them of their joy? And he comes up with a couple things. First of all is bad theology. He says bad theology is going to rob you of your joy. This is why we must be careful theologians here. Don't make the mistake to think that the only theologian is the pastor or the elders, okay? No, we all are theologians. We all have to understand what we believe about God. And if we have bad theology, that's going to that's be a threat to the joy that we have. This is what he's getting at here. When he, 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 this wasn't just some random rabbit trail that he was doing when he says these three commands here. And by the way, they're all alliterated in the Greek. They all start with the Greek word kappa, which was kind of like our, our English equivalent of the word K. And, and these words all start with this, and he's, he's, he's doing this so that they memorize this and so they know this, and he's making a point here as he's saying that you, th- there's going to be a threat to your joy. And so what does he mean by when he says, look out for the dogs, okay? What he's referring to here is he's actually referring to a group in all three of these warnings. He's referring to a group of people known as the Judaizers, okay? Let me explain who those people were in this time. The Judaizers were people who believed that you had to keep the law. You had to keep the law in order to be a Christian. Okay, so so there's Christ, but you had to keep the law. Okay, you had to keep the law of Judaism in order to be accepted by God. And so, yes, Christ did his deal, but you had to keep the law. And so there's like this two-part sanctification or salvation component here to it. And Paul is pushing against this. He's saying, no, 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 no. This is not part. Salvation is of the Lord. Should we obey? Sure. But we don't obey to the point where we have salvation. So he's pushing against this theology, against what's called the Judaizers here. So when he says dogs here, you have to understand, see, Jews, they consider Gentiles dogs. They consider the Gentiles unclean. You know, we, we have a society here where dogs are, are loved and, 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 and revered, I would say, uh, by a lot of people. Uh, that is not the case in a lot of areas of the world, okay? And particularly in this case, you know, you think of this mangy, mutt, wandering, scavenging dog, yeah, that's what when people said dog, when they called the, the Gentiles and the Jews called the Gentiles dogs, they were just scavengers. They were not, you know, fluffy on the on the you know the carpet there and playing and you know playing fetch and you know having a great relationship. That's that's not what was in mind. So when he says beware of the dogs, he he's using their own terminology against Gentiles, and he's saying to the Philippians, listen, these Judaizers are the real dogs here. 
They're the ones that are, are adding to scriptures here. They are actually unclean. So he was flipping the script by saying that these Judaizers are the dogs. He says, look out for the evildoers. Again, I told you the main component about the Judaizers was that they kept the law, that they were ones that they, they, they just were so careful about that. And he says, no, no, no. He says, look out for them evildoers. So he's using their own tenets, and he's saying that, no, actually what they're doing is actually evil working because their hope is not in Christ alone. It's in themselves and what Christ has done. He says, look out for that. He says, those who mutilate the flesh here, look out for that. What is he talking about there? He's ref- that's a reference to circumcision. Again, this was very important to the Jewish faith and the Jewish identity. But they would do it without faith. And so without faith, what Paul is saying here is without tremendous faith in God, if you do this, you're just mutilating flesh. That's all you're doing here. He says that, that basically what he's saying that there's no ex per operato in God's economy. Now, what is that? Uh, some of you may remember that from uh, other teaching. There's, there's a, a segment of teaching that when you uh, just do things like have the Lord's Supper, if you will, or uh, you're baptized, if you will, that, that all of a sudden saving grace is just infused in that moment, whether or not you believe, okay? That's called ex per operato, the Latin for that, which means from the work performed. And uh, some people would teach that this is why, you know, in the Lord's Supper that it becomes the body of uh, the actual body and blood of Christ. We don't teach that because the Bible doesn't teach that, but that would be something that would say, okay, this is the literal body and blood of Christ. And it doesn't matter if someone believes or not when they eat this, it's just the fact that they did it, saving grace is infused upon them. What, what, what Paul's pushing against this here. He says, listen, yeah, they're just mutilating the flesh. When they're, when they're obeying the, the rituals and when they're doing, being obedient to the rituals, it's just mutilating the flesh because it's not accompanied with faith. It's not accompanied with faith in Christ. And he says, listen, you can do these things. You can keep the law. You can do all these things. He says, but in the end, it's going to rob you of the joy found only in Christ. It's a bad theology. Now, what about bad theology today? I mean, most people aren't hung up on these things that we've just talked about here, but we do have bad theology we need to, work, we need to be aware of. Um, I have several listed here, and I won't take a lot of time. In fact, I probably won't get through all of them here, but I'll, I'll just mention a couple. One is a, a moral therapeutic deism. You say, man, I've never heard of that. Um, well, moral therapeutic deism, it was actually a term that uh, a sociologist came up, his guy's name was Christian Smith, and um, it was really to describe a cultural philosophy that, that there's some sort of God that may exist, but his main purpose is to make us feel good and that there's only vague moral implications to a relationship with him. And so there's like, if there's a God, that he's a benevolent God that's unattached to any uh, particular tradition, uh, he's really there mainly to help out with someone's personal problems. And in, in, in a way, they're a practical deist in the sense that deism says that God, he created the world, he set it in motion, but then he just kind of walked away from it. Moral therapeutic deism is that God mainly exists to keep us happy and to meet our needs. You'd be surprised about, you know, some of you would say, well, wait a minute here, that, that's not true. But actually, sometimes we live that way. We live as if it's God's only desire is just to, to keep us happy. And of course, he wants our happiness. I'm not saying he doesn't. But more concerned about his happiness is our holiness. More concerned about whether or not we like every situation we're in He's concerned about shaping, using those things. The Bible is just very clear about Romans chapter 5. It talks about how God uses sufferings to build endurance, right, which builds character, which gives us greater hope. This is Romans chapter 5. 
And so moral therapeutic deism is, is bad theology today. Nominal Christianity, I could talk about as the people who claim to be Christians, but really aren't, uh, they've never really repented or submitted to, to Christ. Um, we talk about radical individualism. Uh, this is an understanding that each one of us has our own way of expressing or realizing our humanity or identity, and we're called to live that out or to express it. You'll hear things in terms like your truth, okay? Um, live out your truth. This is a radical, expressive individualism. This is bad theology, and we have to push against that because it actually, it, 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 counterintuitively, it robs us of the joy of being found, in, found only in Christ. Because then all of a sudden when things don't go according to our plan, as we're expressing our own selves in our own way or living out our own truth, if that's even possible, which is not, but going with the idea is that we're living that out. Guess what? Not everyone wants to live my truth with me, okay? Not everyone likes my truth and wants to support it. And then that causes me great concern. But if I'm saying, no, I'm, I'm conformed to the image of Christ. I'm conformed to following Jesus Christ. And so uh, uh, my joy is found in him, not whether or not people uh, uh, affirm every one of my decisions. So expressive individuals, bad theology. Soft universalism would be another one here, and I'll end with this one. Soft universalism is this idea of, uh, you know, pretty much everyone's getting into heaven, okay? Universalism teaches that everyone goes to heaven in the end, okay? Soft universalism says, well, no, I mean, you know, Hitler's not in heaven, okay? I mean, Hitler's not there. But pretty much everyone else is, and I see this all the time. I see this all the time, funerals I do and things like that. It doesn't matter what type of person, that, that, that the life that person lived. It doesn't matter that they, they didn't even care about God or anything else. Their family always talks about them being in heaven, always. And it's just not true. Now, I, don't, I find no joy in that. But the Bible is very clear that there's a punishment for sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus talked about this. There'll be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's terrible. But the good news is, is that there is a life found in Christ. And that if we repent of our sins, we ask him to save us from our sins, we are saved and we don't have to have that punishment, that eternal punishment. But soft universals of bad theology, do you see why that could attack joy? Is because if joy is found in Christ alone, and we say, well, you know, you know it doesn't really matter how you live, Honestly, there's a lot of frustration that comes with that. So what Paul is talking about here is saying, beware of this stuff. He's saying there's some bad theology to be aware of here. And so let me just encourage you to be people who go to the scriptures. And even test everything that I say. You know, any preacher that stands in this platform, you should have your Bibles open and you should be looking at that. And this is why we tell you to open your Bibles. That's why you say, go to page this, because I want you to be seeing this text here as we talk through it. Bad theology robs us of our joy. But there's another uh, uh, a threat to our joy, and that's misplaced confidence. Misplaced confidence here. You, you notice what Paul talks about. He says, listen, he says, though, and this is on verse 4, though if uh, I myself have reason for confidence uh, in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Then he goes on this list here. Circumcised in the eighth day, other people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the law of Pharisee, zeal, persecuted church, righteousness under the law, blameless. Yeah, he, he just goes through this whole list of 
uh, of things that he says, listen, if anyone has confidence in their own works or their own abilities or who they are, he says, it's me. And he starts with heritage. He starts, he says, listen, you know, I have a heritage that a lot of people would love to have. He, he talks about being circumcised on the eighth day. What does that talk about? Well, it just talks about that his parents were obedient to the law. On the eighth day, the Hebrew tribe was supposed to be circumcised, and they did that, and they obeyed that. So from the beginning, he was set apart to be part of the covenantal family of God. And so from day one, I mean, this, the equivalent would be a, a, a lot. A, a, it's not as strong, but the, the nearest I can think of right now would be, um, you know, you have a child on, uh, we'll say, Saturday, and they're in church on Sunday. Okay, you know, it's like, you know, man, you know, we are, we are going to, you know, dedicate this child to the Lord from day one. This is what would be uh, kind of what he's getting at. He says, hey, I was dedicated right from day one. This is my heritage. He, he goes on to say of the people of Israel. What does he mean by that? He says, I wasn't a proselyte. I, I, didn't, I didn't get confor- converted into it. No, 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 no. I, I was naturally part of the people of Israel here. This is, this is my heritage. He says of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, why was that important? Well, because Benjamin was the only son of the 12 sons that was born in the promised land. Okay, so all the other sons, they were born outside the promised land, but Benjamin was born inside the promised land. And so he says, you know, and so a lot of times the tribe of Benjamin was looked upon with greater esteem. And, and also during the divided kingdom, uh, after Solomon's reign, uh, Benjamin's one that stood with Israel in the southern kingdom there. And so there was, there was some, there was some uh, uh, appreciation that was given to the tribe of Benjamin. He says, I'm the tribe of Benjamin. That's my heritage. He, he's just saying he, he comes from good stock. Hebrew of the Hebrews, uh, that is the idea there is that he spoke Hebrew, which that may not mean anything to you and me, but it did mean something in that day. Because by the time that Paul was writing, most people were speaking Greek. The, the Hellenist uh, Jews, they were speaking Greek. They were not speaking Hebrew. And in fact, it was difficult to retain the Hebrew language in some ways. But he obviously worked hard in some ways because he grew up. It was, you remember, Saul of Tarsus, right? Tarsus was a Gentile community. And so somehow in some way his parents or him he worked hard at retaining the hebrew language so when he gets to this point he says listen if anyone has confidence in what you're doing or who you are he says i've got it i've, I've got the heritage i've got the pedigree i've got the language i've got it all and then he moves on from heritage to accomplishments he says he kept the law and you see that he says as to the law of pharisee uh, under law, blameless. He kept the law. Now, remember when he talk, you know, says that he was a Pharisee. You know, you and I read this back, and you know, we got to be careful not to read something, read the scriptures anachronistically. Now, what I mean by that is that sometimes we can read out of the time frame. That's what anachronistic means: is that we read it outside the time frame. And so we got to go back to this time frame because if you and I read, you know, him bragging about being a Pharisee, we're like, well, that's nothing to brag about. You know, that's like bragging like from Detroit or something, you know. Okay, don't brag about that, you know. You know, but in the 1920s, Detroit was called the Paris of the Midwest. Did you know that? Did you know that there was more wealth per capita in the United States in Detroit in the 1920s than any other place? You see, it was a, it was a booming town. The auto industry, 1930s, things like that. It was a booming town, you know. You see, we, 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 we interpret someone from Detroit like in today's time rather than back then. That's what, that's what we can't do with Paul here. When he says he was a Pharisee, they would have said, wow. Because Pharisees were the ones that people actually looked up to. If, if there was a debate about who was going to get into heaven, it was always the Pharisees. This is why Jesus' conversations with them was so radical. 
Okay, because they said if anyone would be a Christian or would have eternal life, it would sure be the Pharisees. So you and I look back in the term Pharisee and we're like, oh man, those are the people Jesus took to task. These are the people that Jesus called, you know, you know, painted sepulchers and tombs and stuff like this. I don't know. Let's, we got to think about what Paul's day was. And Paul's day, you know, they would have understood when he was growing up, a Pharisee in that time would have been understood as someone who, or at least when Paul was growing up, that Paul was someone that was you know, very accomplished in his spiritual walk. Zealous, he was a persecutor of the church. He was this new sect that was coming called Christianity. He wasn't going to stand for that. And he was dragging people off into prison. He was zealous. Righteous, he talks about as being blameless there. That does not mean sinless. What that means is that he always followed the ritualistic cleansing and purification laws. It doesn't mean that he never sinned. It doesn't mean he said he never sinned. He said, when I sinned, I always followed the cleansing ritual and the purification rites to the letter. I was blameless. So all this to say, when we look at what are these thieves that can steal joy from us? Bad theology and put our confidence in the wrong area. That's what he's getting at here. He's saying, please, be joyful. Please be the people who have joy and don't look to your accomplishments. I'm a good person. Being compliant doesn't guarantee joy. Man, I know the Bible so well. I've memorized so many portions of the scriptures. Well, you know what? The demons know the Bible too. I'm really, really generous. I'm someone who just loves to give things away and I'm incredibly generous. Generosity can't buy joy. I'm really, really smart. That doesn't bring joy. It's a false confidence. I'm successful in business. I I started with nothing, and look at where I am now, the American dream. That doesn't mean you have joy. In fact, it's fleeting. It's absolutely fleeting. Paul says, look at what he says in verse 8. Indeed. Oh, no, verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, if it was competing against Christ, it was loss. He says, all the things that were in the positive side, the things that I thought were absolutely positive, he says, when they became a competition against Christ, they became loss. He says, they, they were absolutely something that no matter what accomplishments and whatever heritage he had, it was absolutely loss. So bad theology is an external thief that we need to be aware of, but misplaced confidence is an internal thief of joy that we need to be aware of here. So I've talked about in this time together here to talk about two main points or two crucial realities about joy and that it's crucial, it's critical for your spiritual well-being. And then it's just this warning. I'm following Paul's warnings here and saying, listen, there are things that will rob you of this joy. And I know that to be true and you know that to be true because you need to be more joyful and I need to be more joyful, okay? And so we all know that we need more joy. We know that there's things that that can rob us of our joy. So that brings us to our third crucial reality. And, of course, you know where this is going. True joy only comes through knowing Jesus. That's where Paul's going here. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I'm in verse 8. For for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. 
You see, what true joy does is it does, uh, or, or, or what Jesus does for us is that he enables us to have true joy in this life, even in the midst of difficulty and trials and, and trying circumstances. Why is that? Well, because there's a couple things. I'll just share two quick points here under this heading here before I, I wrap it up here, is that Jesus changes what is important to us. You see, here he says, I count everything as lost for the surpassing worth. It was this idea of what was important to him. Do you think it was, being a Pharisee was important to him at one day? Yep. Do you think it was important for him to be zealous and in persecuting the church? Yep. Do you think it was important to him that he was of the tribe of Benjamin? Yep. Do you think all these things were crucial to his identity? Absolutely. And he says, but when it became a competition against knowing Christ, it was loss. It was absolutely loss. See, Jesus, he changes what's most important to us. He says he counts them as rubbish. Now, actually, that is a very graphic term in the Greek language. It's, you know, if I were to give you kind of an equivalent of today's English, you would probably be like, preacher shouldn't say that. All right, preacher shouldn't say that, you know, and I'll get an email about it, okay? All right, so I'm not going to say it, okay? But, I mean... It's, it's a very vulgar term that Paul was making the point with here. I'll let you wrestle with that. Under the inspiration of the Scripture, the Holy Spirit, he did that. I'll let you wrestle over lunch with that, okay? All right? But that's what he does here. He says, I count them as rough, rubbish. I think about the things that used to be important to me in life. I mean, you think about this too. You know, when I was younger, playing basketball was incredibly important to me. That's all I wanted to do. I didn't want to play basketball. Yeah, I was a teenager, and so like I'd wake up in the morning, and I'd go out and play basketball, and I'd do my paper route or whatever, go to work, and then I'd come back, or maybe I was you know, working fast food at that point or whatever, and then I, w- I would play basketball after work, and, and yeah, we'd stay up until, you know, until it was dark out, and I remember we had this motion sensor light in our backyard, then it would be on for a little while, and then, and then it would go off, and then we couldn't see the hoop anymore, so my brother and me, we'd take turns running over there, waving our hands and make it come back on, we'd go and play some more, and our neighbors loved us, I'm sure, and so, you know, we're just playing basketball all the time. And then, you know, uh, we're thirsty after, so we get, you know, two liter of Mountain Dew or something, you know, and then we drink that. Then we go to bed right away, of course, because teenagers can do this stuff, right? I mean, they can just do this. And then they wake up, you know, the next day, you know, around noon, and then do it all over again, right? Okay? It's just a wonderful life. This is awesome. And this is what I just love to do, right? That was something I just absolutely love to do. I remember also, you know, I mentioned I had a paper route. I remember wanting so bad. Uh, first of all, it was a walk. Walkman. You guys know what I'm talking about. Some of you do. You know, some of you have no clue at all what I'm talking about here. It was a thing that played cassette tapes. Okay, that didn't help. Okay, all right. Okay, you know, you play cassette tapes and you listen to your music and things like this. Well, then after the Walkman, then I would go on to the Discman. Remember the Discman? Okay, and so you had to walk very gingerly so it didn't skip. Remember this? Okay, all right, you know, ride your bike and everything. So, yeah, it, it, this is the thing I wanted, like, so bad. You know, these are the things I wanted. I wanted the approval of kids at school or in the youth group at church. These are things that were so important to me. Are those things important to me today? I don't play basketball. I don't really care to. Why? Well, I'm old and I'm out of shape. Uh, lack of energy, you know, those things. I like basketball, but I don't wake up in the morning hoping for it. There wasn't a, uh, I, I can't remember the last time I thought, man, I really need a Walkman, okay? Can't remember the last time. Why? Well, greater things, better technologies come along, right? Uh, the approval of, of kids in my school, I don't care 
about that. Now, I care what other people think. So all the point is this, is that over time, things change. What's important to you absolutely changes. But when you be, and that's a natural thing, but when you know Christ, everything changes. And it's beautiful. When you know Christ, all of a sudden, you know, and, and, and again, it's not, it's not linear. We, we struggle. We, we're, we're, until we get to heaven, it's not going to be perfect. But there should be a pattern of growth where the more you get to know Christ, the more joy you have. And the more you can just deal with things in a much better way. You see, the life of joy is a life solely focused on Christ. Now, does this mean that other things like family, friends, and school, and careers, they are unimportant? No, of course not. But what it does mean is that we view all those things through the lens of Christ. And so here's the thing, is that when we do that, we will actually find more joy in those very same things. When I see my family through the lens of Christ, all of a sudden, I find greater joy in them because I see things about what Christ has done for them and how he's shaped them and how he's given them talents and abilities and skills and how he's working in their life. And all of a sudden, I look at the opportunity for us to have a more close relationship because of what Christ has done for us. And it brings so much more joy. Careers, when you see that your career is a gift from God to serve him and to use the giftedness that you had to, to, to put on display, how he's skilled you and, and given you all these things, all of a sudden you see, wait a minute here, this isn't about just get a paycheck. This isn't about just, okay, you know, the daily grind of getting the This is about reflecting glory of God. There's more joy there. When you see everything that God has put you in in this life through the lens of Christ, you will appreciate it more and have greater joy than if you just look at it on its own relationships, careers, everything. And so this is what he's saying. He says, this is what I want you to know, Philippians. I just please, please rejoice in the Lord. So what Jesus has done is not only does he change everything that's important to us, but he has a joy-inducing upside-down kingdom. All right? This is what Jesus gives us. He gives us a joy-inducing upside-down kingdom. You're like, well, I don't know if I like that or not. I like the joy part. What's this upside-down thing? You know, when you follow Christ, losing means gaining. This is what he talks about. All these things I, I, I count as loss, but I gain Christ. That's the upside-down kingdom. Losing everything, gaining Christ. Dependence brings freedom. He noticed this, and in, in, I'm running out of time here, but he says this. He says in verse 9, And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, it comes from the law, That independent spirit, he says, I don't have that. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He says, dependence actually brings freedom. No longer am I trying to keep my salvation or earn my salvation and keep God happy. How is that a life of joy, by the way? He says, but my my dependence on Christ's righteousness, that actually brings freedom. It brings freedom that I can say it's no longer about whether or not I am perfect or or keep this and I have the right heritage and the right accomplishments. It's about what Christ has done. And of course, that doesn't mean we don't obey. Of course, that doesn't mean we don't follow his rules and his commandments. But what it does mean is that our joy isn't determined on whether or not we are perfect. He says dependence brings freedom. Power from death, he says, that I may know him. He says, and the power of his resurrection, verse 10. Become like him in his death. Power from death, recognizing that, you know, death to our sin is a beautiful thing. And then when we die, we go to heaven. That doesn't mean we try to hasten that. We, we use every moment that God has given to us on this earth for his glory and honor. But we do recognize when the time is done, death means something better. See, this upside-down kingdom, death brings life. Power from death. 
Beneficial suffering. I mentioned that earlier, Romans chapter 5, that suffering that we go through, it actually builds character and endurance, which gives us greater hope. This joy-inducing upside-down kingdom. So the next time you're going through a difficult time and you're saying, God, what is going on here? Go back to Romans 5 and say, okay, he must be doing this to build character and endurance so I'll have greater hope in him. That brings joy because God never wastes anything. You know what, what kills joy is when you think you're going through a difficult circumstance for nothing. That's what kills joy. But when you recognize it in Christ, he uses all things for his glory and our good, we can have joy. Joy doesn't mean we love every moment of it, but it means that we can say, God, I trust you, and I'm going to rejoice in what you're doing for us. So Jesus here, he's absolutely worth imitating here, and this is what Paul's getting. He's saying, this is how you can have joy. So my question is, do you know Christ? Is it your pursuit to know him better? The question we could ask is, you know, how well do you know Jesus? Now, I'm not saying how much facts do you know about Jesus? How well do you know him? If you were to tell me, hey, tell me about a nook, and I said, okay, her birthday is this, social security number is this, she's this tall, you know, she has this color hair, you know, these are color eyes, you know, things like this, you'd be like, well, okay, those are interesting facts, okay, um, but I want to know about her. What makes her tick? What does she like? What does she doesn't like? If I'm not able to tell you that, what type of relationship do I have with her? The fact that I can just spout out facts about her doesn't mean that I know her. How so with Christ? If you know Christ, get to know him. Spend time with him. Spend time in his word, right? It's absolutely crucial. I'm going to close with, with this quote here and then some questions. This quote, I don't have it on the screen, so you just have to listen to it. John Piper wrote this in his book, God is the Gospel. He says this, If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you've ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven, that heaven, if Christ was not there? I think the reality, I remember the first time I read that, and I had to be honest, and I saw it to myself. I think maybe I would be happy there. But then I realized, no, I wouldn't. And it was convicting to me. It was convicting to me that I need to know Christ and get to know him more. So if we want true joy, we, and we should because it's crucial to our spiritual well-being, don't look to any accomplishments or heritage. Resist bad theology. Look to Christ. Get to know him. We sang a song, all I have is Christ today. It is so true. It's absolutely true. So do your children know Jesus better because you are their parents? Do your grandchildren know Jesus better because you're their grandparent? Students, does anyone know Jesus better because you are in their class or their lives? The question you need to ask is, what are you doing to know Christ better? How would your family be different if you prioritized knowing Jesus better each week? What difference would it make in your approach to work if you knew Jesus better tomorrow than a month ago? Would your marriage be better if both of you made it your goal to know Christ? How would our church have a greater influence on Verona if we all counted everything else as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Christ. Know Christ. 
get to know him. That's really the only way to have true joy. We have the Lord's Supper here. It's a beautiful time. It's a time for us to reflect on the sermon of what we talked about, the text here. But keep in mind this. It's a reminder of Jesus' death. Remember what uh, Hebrews chapter 12 says? It says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. That's why I said you don't have to like everything in order to have joy. Jesus, it wasn't like he liked the cross. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked the Father if there's any other way. But it still was joy for him because of what it was going to accomplish for our sins and for the glory of God. We get to know Jesus better at the table. We get to get his heart here. We get to see exactly what ticked him. We see, uh, made him tick. We get, to, we get to, to see his obedience here. We get to see that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, as we looked at a couple weeks ago. So it's really a joy. It's a joy to eat at this table. It's a joy to eat with our brothers and sisters today. One of the things I loved about Isaiah's testimony when he, we talked about that is that he says one of the reasons why he wanted to make his faith public is because he wanted to eat with the Lord's Supper with his brothers and sisters. Um, it's been important to Isaiah when this whole notion of brothers and sisters in Christ has brought him joy, and it should. It should bring you joy and me joy that we have brothers and sisters in Christ and we get to eat together.